Madden Luke's Sci-Fi Sanctuary. The year is 3013. The galaxy is scintillating in the mellow light. Two galactic pilgrims seek out vistas in the samurai future to bring forth the unity of the cosmic shaman. Opening the door of the pantheon of mystics, the evil sorcerer wizard powers the engine of science, seeking to forever alter the sacred balance, traveling on effervescent balls of summer fire. This week, Showgirls. In the year 1995, Verhoeven learned that you can eviscerate as many people as you want, but you can't show a titty. <laughs> well, there's plenty here. They, they might... They're not shown in the most sexiest way, but they're here. Yeah, but no one, apparently no one wanted him to show them. <laughs> so um, today's film, well, are you talking about like the VH1 one where they covered it all up? Oh, yeah, I just was hearing about like Ireland banned it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Anyway, um, so it's, it's not sci-fi. I do have an explanation for this being sci-fi. It's 1995 Showgirls. Should I do my explanation or should we talk about why we're not doing sci-fi? I mean, I've, this is probably not the first one of our non-sci-fi month, so. Right. Anyway, um, I, I've been trying to get this one in for a year. I'm like, oh, it's like in Star Trek's Mirror Universe, but <laughs> like 300 years earlier. <laughs> I remember you telling me that was your theory, right? But, um, yeah, this is our, our celluloid... Uh, sanctuary month where we are looking into films that we're, we want to talk about that are decidedly not sci-fi. So my, my explanation does not really hold. Who are you? I'm Matt. I'm Who are Luke. you? And wait for the question. Okay. No, I do what I want. <laughs> and this is, I don't know, it's a celluloid sanctuary now? Yeah, just uh, for this month. Just for this month. Probably. And what's the film? I already said 1995 Showgirls. You did actually, yeah. We're back to that. So, um, we, we are not talking to a Vegas showgirl today. We have so, something better, I think, because um, I, I, I'm more into the burlesque scene. So um, we've collaborated before. She uh, works on a lot of the Gonzarific films. I do the music. She acts and uh, other things. But um, this is actually our first conversation. Uh, she's a burlesque queen all, all over the states, including Alaska. She is the uh, Doris Day of dropping trowel. Hello, D Flowers. Hi, thank you for having me. Thank you. And, and Luke knows I've been like just chomping at the bit to, to talk about Showgirls for a, quite a while. <laughs> when did you first catch this film? That's the interesting thing. I didn't catch it until relatively late in the game. Uh, it came out in 1995. So I was 16. Yeah. My friends were all a few years older than me. And um, like they went to see it, but it was NC-17. So they really would not let you in the door. There was actually a minor scandal where Joe Esterhaus, the screenwriter, was like trying to convince you, oh, go get a fake ID and see it. But uh, <laughs> I did not get the fake ID and I didn't see it. And I didn't actually see it till probably about 2011, 2012. Uh, there's a, a Black Friday, you know, Amazon sale. It's like three bucks Blu-ray. I'm like, yes. <laughs> and because, um, you know, in the mid 90s, I watched like lots of art films. I actually did watch a lot of movies at a time. And, you know, Showgirls was roundly panned. Mm. So I was like, oh, I guess I should probably skip it. And I, I thought since I have a weird Saved by the Bell obsession, I thought it might um, traumatize me with Elizabeth Berkeley. But uh, yeah, once I actually did see it, I, I absolutely loved it. For me, it's like a, you know, 
like a 70s John Waters film sort of thing. So, (laughs) okay. Was this your first experience? Yeah, I finished watching it for the first time 19 minutes ago. (laughs) (laughs) So you got to give us your first impressions. Um, Everyone in this film is so angry and I don't know why. (laughs) (laughs) That's where my mirror universe thing comes in. (laughs) It's like, they just meet. It's like, oh, you're my arch nemesis. I hate you. And I'm like, why? (laughs) Very John Waters again. (laughs) So, uh, Dee, we were talking a little bit off, Mike, where you're you're not quite sure where this one came into your life, but if you want to, you can ramble that into uh, how you came into doing burlesque uh, too, if you want. (laughs) Well, um, I'm, I mean, I've always done a lot of theater um, before I was doing burlesque, um, and I've I've kind of been involved in theatrical worlds, drag, all of that for a really long time. Um, I guess when it came out, I would have been 18 or 19, something like that. Um, but I, di- I know I didn't see it right away because me at 18 or 19 was a little bit nervous about all the nudity. Like I was actually in, in, intimidated by it. Like there's gonna to be too much sex and I'm going to not, not going to be able to handle it. <laughs> so um, I probably didn't see it until my early twenties, but then it became one of those movies that like you'd go over to a friend's house and Showgirls is on because we're just gonna watch Showgirls in the background because it's a thing that you do. Um, I mean, drag queens have hosted, you know, midnight showings of showgirls. It, it turned into this thing with a cult following. Um, and I, I, I feel like when I first saw it, I had a completely different take on it than, than I have over time. Like the first time I saw it, I just was like, oh, this is bad, you know? And then I came to appreciate the camp and now watching it like, 20 years later it's funny all the things that I see in it that I didn't originally but um but yeah I come from a burlesque background and so the other interesting thing when I first saw it I hadn't spent a lot of time backstage with the naked ladies at this stage in my life spending time backstage with naked ladies is so normal so <laughs> watching showgirls it's really interesting to see these backs backstage settings and I'm like this is this is actually what it looks like. This is so familiar now. <laughs> We've been watching this one. I mean, for all the nudity, it's not not a very sexy movie at all. <laughs> Most of the nudity, I, I, it, like overall, in terms of screen time, I think the bulk of the nudity is for practical purposes. Because when you get on stage and part of your job on stage is to be naked, when you get backstage and you've got to fix your makeup and rush to put on a costume, you just don't put clothes on because it's not practical. So it's really normal to be have a whole bunch of ladies running around naked because it's just more practical. And you were just naked on stage. Why would you be squeamish about it, right? Oh. So um, it's funny because I feel like so much of the nudity, some of it is just not sexy because it's so weird, but some of it's not sexy because you start to realize, you know, these people are just working. They're just in the middle of their day. Like that's the vibe from it to me. Well then we brought it up in other Verhoeven films because in Robocop and Starship Starship Troopers, there's loads of locker room scenes where everyone's just naked. Men, women just wander around naked because you're getting changed. You're you're soldiers. You don't have time to worry about that stuff. People would Um, be naked at that time. It's I think it's a, it's a thing that it's weird to Americans 
but fervent mm-hmm. so European. Yeah. And yeah. like in Europe and especially here in Japan, just like we go to the onsen quite often and you're just naked with your buddies. It's mm-hmm. and um it's such a Hollywood thing that like, oh no, you can't see a, a naked person, but you know, that's how we're born. That's the natural human condition. Yeah, but- and I, I I do think that we have such a taboo about it in the States. Um, but um and and I think um uh, Verhoeven had already, like you said, kind of shown that he does natural nudity in in any setting that it's natural in. But I also felt like in Basic Instinct, um, it paid off for him so well to have nudity used in a way that, well, partial glimpses of nudity used in a way that were shocking. Mm. But I also felt like um, there's a certain amount of like a little shock factor worked so well for me, you know, Next, maybe I'll just go for really big shock factor <laughs> in right. terms of nudity. I did always feel like there was an element of that. Like if a little bit of this um, does so well, what will it do for me if there's a ton of it? Part of what pushes this movie, I mean, you watch it, it's basically like a really fun curio in a way and in isolation, that's what it is. But it is part of um, Verhoeven's like five film constructed raspberry against American culture. So in that context, it kind of, you know, it becomes more than the sum of its parts, I think. Yeah, there's definitely, there are elements in the acting and the writing where I think this is just literally bad. (laughs) A lot of the things that it's controversial for, I think it was trying to say something about the entertainment industry. Yeah, it's funny, I was re-watching it and I was trying to think like, um, if you take out delivery, you know, and you just try to think about the lines. And um, I felt like there were only a few lines that were just like, that's just a bad choice. Like that is not a good line. But some of them were like, this person was probably asked to do the line in this, you know, over the top way. And if the line had been delivered differently or more naturally, it probably would have been just fine. Although overall, I found it, I I just rewatched it so that it would be fresh in my mind. And I found it more natural than I remembered it being. And I wasn't expecting that. Um, Maybe because in my memory, I kind of blew it up as more campy than it actually was. Or maybe it's the perspective, I don't know. Um, I do want to get a little more into talking about the actors here and things, but... um... Luke, are you going to run down that story for us? Yeah, I just need to open the Wikipedia because I've forgotten all of the characters' names. It's <laughs> <laughs> fair. It's fair. Especially when they've all got like weird, they got like three names each. I <laughs> <laughs> got oh, Nomi Malone. We got Miss Bazoom. Well, she's Nomi Malone. She's also Heather and she's also Polly. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and she's Elizabeth Berkeley. <laughs> she contains multitudes. Don't we all? <laughs> You're going to leave all this in, aren't you? Maybe. (laughs) (laughs) I'm trying to look. I had made myself a name, uh, a note about uh, the queen of the bazooms was Henrietta. 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 Of course, she's interesting to me as the distinct burlesque element in in the film. She reminds me of the burlesque star that I knew.
Naomi Malone hitchhikes her way to Las Vegas to get her name in lights and dance on stage. When she gets there, she meets Molly, a seamstress at the Starlight. Initially, Nomi starts working at a strip joint, but eventually she gets an audition to work in Goddess. She manages to backstab and fuck her way to the top, but when she gets there, her best friend is brutally raped by musician Carver? Andrew Carver. <laughs> and Nomi learns that Hollywood is just a big sick game where you can do whatever you want as long as you look nice on stage. Which is kind of what Verhoeven learned a few years later. Vegas, Vegas. Hollywood was going to be the sequel that never happened. But it all, it's all <laughs> the same thing. Yeah, but yeah, this this is the one time Verhoeven he didn't make RoboCop too. He didn't remake Total Recall. He was thinking about doing the Hollywood version of this one. That's definitely a big sequel sting at the end. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, that's the reason he didn't get to make it is because they knew he was gunning for them. I think. <laughs> Fair enough. Because yeah, the what happens at the end that's what goes down all the time in like the entertainment industry, and mm -hmm. Verhoeven didn't know that and did want to say something about <laughs> it. I think. Well, moving into the actors, um, should I say it for this movie? That didn't sound good for this movie. Okay. Anyway, talking about the actors, uh, Verhoeven has said that he doesn't have that many regrets, but his one re big regret here is basically um, destroying Elizabeth Berkeley's career with this one. Uh, most of the weird, the choices that were kind of labeled on her as weird acting choices and the fact that the movie flopped, Verhoeven's like, I told her to act that way. Right. I directed her to act that way. <laughs> That's why she was doing that, so. Yeah, once reading his interview where he talks about that and um, how that was supposed to relate to her history with drugs, it made watching the film so different because you realize the director has this whole subplot in mind for the entire film that he's not, he's not doing a good enough job of that the audience has any idea what's going on. Like it never reads to me that Nobi, Nomi has a drug habit or history. And when Coke is brought up to her, she doesn't like bat an eyelash. They don't have her react to that at all as though she has a drug history. But then he has, has her behave in a jerky way or have these like sudden reactions and that's supposed to relate to her drug history. And I really felt like he, in, introduced a subplot that no one knew about but him in a sense and it really undermined her on stage because whatever else you can say from her you can't take her eyes your eyes off her right like I mean she's just riveting the whole time she really draws the eye um if she had been allowed to do it in a more natural way I think that uh it would have been far more successful for her and done better things for her career. Yeah. And she's managed to overcome it eventually. And she'd been allowed a few more quiet moments then you would have actually felt something when she is screaming and shouting and angry. But <laughs> when every single line is delivered that way, it kind of loses some meaning. 
I also think the way she's shot, I don't know if you would agree with this, but I feel like the way she's shot in the film is as though she's the hero, right? She's introduced to us as though she's the hero. She's mm. our protagonist. I think she's really an anti-hero. She's almost a bad guy. I mean, she's not a nice person from the day, the moment she shows up. She's that one naive moment where she lets the guy get her suitcase. But other than that, from the very beginning, you know, she's, she attacks Molly. Somehow they instantly become friends just after she attacked Molly against her car. God yeah. only knows why. Then she uses Molly for somewhere to live and to get her a job. She meets this guy use it um when they're out of the club makes him lose his job uh, twice his, <laughs> yeah, james, she makes james lose his job twice even though he volunteers to help you know teach her to dance um and is just a complete jerk to him like she just uses everyone the only nice thing she does in the movie really is kick what's his name's ass at the end yes yeah, so that's like, one of the most justified beatdowns in cinema i think <laughs> yep that was the most Verhoeven scene of the whole film. <laughs> but that's like her one shining moment of being a good human. Well, which is like, very anti-hero. She's, she's yeah. still being awful. She's just doing it to the right people. She, yeah, she's just doing it because she ca finally cares about someone. Because all the rest of the film, when she acts like she cares about Molly, I feel like, but do you really? Or is Molly just like paying for Useful. everything? Yeah. Putting a roof over your head. Is that what's really happening? Well, the whole the whole central conflict of the film is um, Nomi and Crystal, but mm -hmm. she instantly decides she hates Crystal, <laughs> like off, based on very little. Yeah, I mean, I took it as kind of a like recognizing like sort of thing, hmm. but in the end, I find Crystal to be nicer than Nomi. She oh, definitely. Yeah, she has more softness to her than Nomi does. But when I was younger and I first watched this, I was like. Well, Nomi is supposed to be the hero because she's the main character, right? right. So I have to hate Crystal because she's the bad guy because she's mean to Nomi. <laughs> but I, it always left me with this funny feeling. And now I look at it and I'm like, no, no, Crystal's my gal. I like Crystal. <laughs> That's where uh, casting Gina Gershon helps a whole lot too. Because, uh, you know, especially if you've been following B movies, you're like kind of her reputation precedes her. And, and Luke, I guess you're not particularly familiar with this uh I feel like I knew her face, but maybe okay. she just looks like someone else. You've probably, you've seen her in a, a B-movie or two from the past 30 years. Okay. <laughs> Look up her IMDb. It just like goes on forever. Gina Gershon's done a lot and she's so good. I love her. Okay. Well, yeah, she's been in some Schwarzenegger films, so I've definitely seen her. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And probably in every genre, she's at least got one, right? Like at least. So. Yeah. But I, I do love her. And I did go into the film already loving her. But um, but it was funny coming to, like, watching it again much older and realizing, oh, hold on, Nomi's kind of the bad guy, really. Well, yeah, <laughs> Crystal got to, to mellow with age a little bit. I mean, she, you know, you know, you see her hackles go up when someone mentions that, of course, but <laughs> in the <Yeah>. film. <laughs> as... That is such a thing in entertainment. It, it really is, like, I, I have watched, I mean, we still have a lot of burlesque performers who, you know, are super successful and are much older, but you you watch people having kind of um, tense reactions when they realize, you know, there's a younger girl who's kind of doing a similar shtick to what they do and, and being booked in the same region. It's tough. 
uh, watching that that competition. Well, again, if we read the film as a parody of the Hollywood industry, I know it's set in Vegas, but yeah. it's about Hollywood. <laughs> and that is what happens to women, like in Bill and Ted, where they recast their wives with actresses 10 years younger between films. <laughs> just women are not allowed to age in Hollywood. And I think later, Esterhaus, is that how you say his name? Esterhaus, I'm pretty sure. Right? Yeah. And um, he went on to write, I think, two books that were criticisms of the whole Hollywood system and about those types of issues. So obviously he had that on the brain. And, and he has said in um, later interviews, like when he wrote this movie, he was personally in like a dark place. Like he was not on the up and up doing it. <laughs> so the attitude comes through. Maybe he was having a Nomi attitude and that just kind of came through in the character. <laughs> um, Kyle McLaughlin, uh, yeah, he he he's he said he did not leave the screening of the film, but 45 minutes in, he was definitely like, "Oh my God, what have I done?" <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Nine, 1995, you can kind of get that. Everything I've read from him is like he was just like, "Okay, I need to immediately distance myself from this." <laughs> yeah, he didn't sound too happy about it. Although he said some things about being pleased or reassured, or at least less horrified, because he realized that it's had this second life, right? And has kind of taken on a life as, as something that's considered humorous. Although he said, you know, that's considered humorous, even if that's not what we were trying to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, his character, Zach, I, I can't help but um, hate him because he has the same bad choice haircut I did around 1995. Oh, really? That's <laughs> <laughs> He's just got the 90s bad boy haircut. It's the John Connor haircut. That's a bad boy haircut? Oh, okay, I didn't know. It was in the 90s. It's not anymore. It's the J-pop idol haircut now. Oh, see, I, for me, it was the... Um, I play in a punk band with long hairs, but I'm also a Boy Scout haircut. <laughs> <laughs> I love Kyle MacLachlan, but... Um... I, I, my first note that I wrote to myself when he walked on screen as I was like rewatching for these purposes was like, that is the worst hair of all time. <laughs> oh my gosh, I forgot the hair. I, I lived with it for a while. No, you can, you can find a shot. It's about 1995 with the band I play with Andrew and I have that complete haircut. It's horrible. <laughs> but um, I, I did notice there's, I haven't seen it, but there's a, like in the past 10 years stage production of Showgirls mm. with a musical where they just renamed Zach's character, Kyle McLaughton. <laughs> they just named the Amazing. Oh my gosh. He's a, he's given second billing, but I didn't feel like he was that major a character. But he'd been in Twin Peaks. Yeah, I know. Velvet it's just he's the because he, he was a marquee star. Like, yeah. I, I, I'd say Gina Gershon had done a lot more than him at this point, but he was, he probably had a little more marquee power at this point in time. Yeah. Especially yeah, after the <laughs> He was sort of the A-list, uh, A-lister among them. Um, the, oh geez, it's, it's, it's the guy whose face you always know and you can never go with a name. So Luke's looking that up at the, uh, the manager of the cheetah. Oh, the Al, he is in this. Robert Davis. Oh yeah. I don't even know his name. Okay. But he's in everything. Yeah, oh, just Davey. Yeah, he's in Die Hard, Bond, Goonies. He's definitely, yeah, like you say, he's just a, you look at that face and you know his face. Yeah. <laughs> but is he, did he do any other Verhoeven? He seems like the kind of guy who would have been in Robocop or something. We had like Jose Theory and stuff for other films. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then, uh, anyway, I just wanted to 
you know, because just as the character actor you always recognize, and the name I completely don't recognize. So he also wild. his character is interesting because at the start of the film, you know, obviously he owns a strip club. You're meant to hate him, but he actually is kind of likable when he appears later on. But he does yeah. blowjobs also. But yeah, yeah, that came across <laughs> like he was mostly joking. <laughs> a really strange arc, but I mean, I one that I think I've actually probably seen in entertainment where you know. Uh, over time, people working together, like like having that sort of kind of warmth after mm. having some distance from that working relationship. It was kind of sweet when he showed up at the end, but that is one of my lines that I was like, okay, I'm sorry, that's just a bad line. The It must be weird not having anybody come on you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's just not a good line. Come on. That- just- that one needed a rewrite or two. That was Joe Esterhaz's uh, example for him being like, oh, of course I meant for this movie to be funny. How could you write a line like that and not expect it to be funny? <laughs> <laughs> well, I love, the, I, I do love the actor's delivery. He gives it this like nostalgic, like, wow, that must be real strange. <laughs> like he's so serious when he says it, like wistful even, which... Yeah makes it even weirder <laughs> um and then the the two actors who are the only characters that are not horrible people in this movie we got molly a, another face we've seen many places um yeah, yeah, sorry you're on the con there sorry right, yeah sorry i keep forgetting I'm, I'm the man in the chair for this one apparently yeah <laughs> that's um gina rivera there you go yeah gina well, rivera. i know she's been in like 87 other things Oh, oh so yeah, yeah. Is the top hit, though. I think that's just because that's where I came from. Yeah. Uh, there's actually a lot of TV stuff more so than movies. Oh, I guess I've seen her on TV. Okay. She's in, oh, shoot, uh, what is it, Stranger Days, Strange Days? Like in 96, 97, it was a sci-fi film that came out with Rafe Fiennes. Okay. And, but anyway. And I, I, when you're scrolling through, I think I remember her from Boston Legal. Okay. Yeah. It's been a long time since yeah, I, I watched that show. I don't but... watch TV, so I well, I don't either. I watched it. It was like 15 years ago, so I'm not 100 percent sure. But I saw her there, so I'm feeling like I probably recognized her from okay. from that a bit. She was nice, but not that exciting a character, I guess, because she was there to be the one nice person. Well, there's two nice people. There's two nice people. Okay. But, <laughs> so she didn't get like huge dramatic moments or anything. Well, but, except for that uh, well, one. yeah, <laughs> but she's so dramatic so is traumatic. Uh, yeah, sort of the most um, human and natural character person character. Well, I mean, that's why at the end she reacts so poorly to Nomi being such a huge bitch because she is a human being, whereas all the other characters are in this showbiz world where that's what you do. You know, you claw your way to the top. Where she can look at it from the point of view of like that was an awful thing you did. <laughs> I guess uh, that, let's get to Miss Bazoom then, because that's the most fantastic dress ever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Henrietta. I, still, I think there's somebody else who's done that on the burlesque burlesque circuit, but um, but she was a trip. She was really lovely. The the character, although you know, obviously her shtick on stage is to be as foul mouthed as possible. Right. And I've known people that that's their thing on stage. Like they deliver like the most grotesquely obscene work, like, you know, lines that they possibly can. And the audience loves it. <laughs> I, I do need to tell you about a time when I saw someone outclass this though. Um, I don't think, I, yeah, I'm pretty sure I haven't told the story on the podcast. I was at a hostel on, on the Georgia coast. This is like almost 20 years ago, but um, 
part of the deal for them using this land was they had the, the owner of the land let them use it. And they had to take this uh, like 95 year old blind black woman to a juke joint once a week. And they were like, hey, does anybody want to come? It's like, yes. <laughs> so we go, we pick her up. And it's just like this. I mean, it looks it's the only reason white people were even allowed to come in is because we were with um, with this lady <laughs> who was, you know, a community figure. So we're there. The only thing you can drink is Miller High Life. And she sits down. She's, you know, sweetest lady sits down. She's blind. She starts making toasts that would make Rudy Ray more Dolomite blush. <laughs> it was just like the most foul mouth, like dirty stuff. It was fantastic. So um, that, that, that's the dirtiest language I've ever heard anyone do. <laughs> Some of the dirtiest things I've ever heard have been from burlesque legends. We call um, any burlesque performer who began their career, I think it's like more than 30 years ago. And I think we just lost um, the last living burlesque legend from the 40s, but we still have ladies from the 50s, 60s, 70s. And some of those ladies tell the filthiest stories and they'll be up on a panel. They'll, you know, a bunch of us, you know, younger performers will come to see them talk. And there will be this like 70 or 80 year old lady like on stage talking about like somebody accidentally reaching up and grabbing her pussy and like just using all sorts of dirty words and like telling all sorts of weird obscene stories or drug stories and everybody's just sitting there <laughs> because it's somebody that looks like your granny who's just got the wildest stories you can imagine. Oh, Luke, the you had the question a few weeks ago, how do you become a legend? Now you know. Yep, there you go. <laughs> and we, we thought it was through giant sausages. <laughs> I should qualify that. We, we got these like meter long cot dogs at a place uh, up in the mountains. And the menu said, heavy dog, be a legend. <laughs> so that was why we ordered them. <laughs> Apparently we're returning for the beast. <laughs> I was trying to think who like the most foul-mouthed person I've ever met wasn't. I think it's just my mother. <laughs> Every single friend from school, it's like, oh, the first time I met your mum, she dropped the C word in front of me. <laughs> I was sat at my house with like a brand new girlfriend. My mum just walks in the door and is like, she's a teacher. Oh, year nine's a cunt. <laughs> oh my gosh. That's why I find it so easy to swear. <laughs> I, I mean, okay, you said that you only thought there were two nice characters and you might differ in opinion from this, but I think in essence, James is a nice character. I think that you're kind, he's kind of set up to look like he's not a nice guy, but he's not in a relationship with Nomi. So why is he a bad guy? Because he turned around and got laid. Like that doesn't make I him a bad guy. I think the fact that he was feeding them both the same lines is a bit yeah, lame, but it's not it's, the worst thing anyone's ever done. Evil, no. you know. And at the, the end, he does marry her to support the support when she gets pregnant. We'll, we'll so. call him um, realistically flawed as most of us are anyway. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I just felt like he was the other sort of fairly realistic and not too over the top and trying to just be a normal human being kind of character. I think he represents the character who tried to get into so business and then decided, oh, that's not for me. Mm. Yeah, who wasn't willing to be to... a normal human being instead. Yeah, who wasn't willing to do the things that Nomi was willing to do. Right. 
Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. I also thought it was really striking that two of the most grounded characters um, and two of the characters that, you know, everything turns out terribly for are the only two like large roles for black actors. Mm. Well, and the third uh, role that's a black actor is that dancer and awful stuff happens to her too. To her as well, yeah. You have three, you know, named speaking roles that are black actors and they manage to have awful things happen to all of them. Although I guess James gets off relatively easy. The mm. women, of course, you know, the black women in the film do not come out of it well. And again, um, if you're looking at it as a metaphor for the film industry, Mm. They're saying something that. Well, I mean, in the 90s, by that time, people had figured out don't be overtly racist for the most part. Mm. <laughs> but there's, you know, you still have like, you know, old white men writing the scripts and all this sort of and yeah. casting directors and stuff. So that's that's seeping through. I know there's another podcast I've heard a few times that uh, it's uh, just a name drop is a uh, black men can't jump in Hollywood mm. where they'll, they'll look at these films and they'll really, you know, notice that a little bit more. So. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think that in 90, it was 95, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think in 95, um, you know, white men writing and directing films figured they were being super progressive if they had, you know, in a dominantly white cast, like at least a few named with lines black actors. Um, and I think we maybe have evolved to a point where it's, it also matters what you do to those characters, not just the fact that they're there, but that really stood out to me in rewatching it. I mean, have we learned that? I'm not so sure we have. I think we're more, I think we're more aware of it. I, I'm not saying it's been fixed, but yeah. I do think that um, that next step is something that people are slightly more aware of now. I'm just thinking of the nine different Marvel films where you have the white superhero with his black sidekick. Yeah, well, mm -hmm. actually, the, the Winter Soldier and the Falcon premieres today, so we'll see how it plays. Oh, there, there. you go. <laughs> yeah. I guess they've made the white guy the sidekick in that one. So As of this recording, when you're listening, it's probably the whole thing's aired and you'll know what the case is. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it turns out it's super racist. <laughs> <laughs> So I'm not a, I'm the person in this conversation. It's not a dancer. One of the reasons I started playing guitar is so no one would dance, ask me to dance at parties. Um, my attempts at dancing are, are, are not good. My attempts at dancing are not good, <laughs> but people seem to enjoy them. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I'm, I can dance, but most of what I do on stage is less dancing and more comedy. So... Um, I always call myself a boob clown. I I actually do more humor and wacky hijinks um, than I do proper dancing. But uh, speaking of dancing, um, I, I read an interesting quote from Elizabeth Berkeley, who was talking about how she's enjoying now that she's, you know, 
been on these shows that are like dancing centric. So she's working with all these people who are dancers and she feels like they have a very different perspective on her doing showgirls because they know that that means she had like 18 hour work days learning intricate choreography that looks really easy, but actually having that many people do exactly the same turn at exactly the same time is grueling and horrific and takes forever. So um, it it was interesting hearing her talk about that because she, I guess, has been dancing since she was like four. Like she's actually a dancer. Yeah, that was her apparently her key into Hollywood. Just uh, being because I think I, again I heard an interview with her. Um, I think she's from Illinois or somewhere Midwestish, maybe Indiana. So it's not a place where you're necessarily going to get um, you know seen. Um, so that that kind of was her key and um, right. Uh, apparently, actually writing a letter to an executive who did apparently take notice at some point, at least let her audition. So sometimes that stuff works. Apparently. <laughs> Yeah, I had no idea. Well, in the scene in the club where we first see her dancing and James first sees her and he wants to like teach her and she really is kind of flailing about a bit. It really reading about her dancing history, it occurred to me they must have told her not to be very good, like or to look a little bit awkward or a little bit off or or a little too over the top that because this is a woman who really can dance. You know, so if she looks a little strange in that scene, somebody told her to dance that way. It makes me think of um, Carlton from The Fresh Prince. You have to be a very good dancer to be able to dance badly and make it entertaining. Yes. (laughs) Like he's a phenomenal dancer. He's a professional dancer, but he's famous for that character dancing in that ridiculous Mm -hmm. way which, you know, was him showing that this is a guy who is lost touch with his roots and is dancing like a white guy, basically. Because it's it works with his character, yeah. yeah. I don't know if you remember, but there's that, well, you you just watched it. Um, there's <laughs> that moment where she's tried on the Versace dress yeah. in front of the mirrors, and she does this, like, like five-second tap dance because she's happy. Like she's just tried on the dress. She's excited about it and does this spontaneous, I'm assuming five second tap dance. And you can tell she can tap dance. Right. It's sharp. It's exactly right. And it's just a couple seconds. And Nomi probably wouldn't have known how to do that. <laughs> but Elizabeth Berkeley does. Yeah. And it was kind of a neat little moment of almost broken character where you can see, oh, now there's some real chops in there. I mean, also the stuff she does later on stage is obviously really taxing and hard, but I love that tap dance moment because I'm like, oh, no, that's her. That's really her. Yeah. Um, I should talk about my my trip to Vegas. There's there's no particularly horrible stories. One night in Vegas, I guess I don't get the, see, I could get the appeal of burlesque in Athens. I've been to the Boy Butant Ball before when, I don't know if they, I hope they still do that, but when yeah, I I've, many times okay <laughs> but yeah I, I, that would have been like 20 years ago and I saw it every year because um I was at the university union our, our boss was one of the um Willie one of the organizers so <laughs> oh, wow yes I know him yeah go yeah on. so he had to go see the boss uh and yeah. see drag <laughs> it was great but um when I went to Vegas something like goddess had you know, would have had zero appeal to me um I remember my main thing was um I wanted to go to Star Trek the experience obviously <laughs> <laughs> Which was fun, but yeah, I did. You know, I wasn't. I, I 
to me, watching that show would seem kind of weird. Uh, I guess it's why I didn't get cats, you know? And I, I haven't seen the movie yet because uh, I'm waiting for the butthole cut. But uh, <laughs> I did see the musical and my dad and I was like, what's happening? You know, I think it's just the dancing. James in this film describes it. It's for people who they want to go and see ass and titties, but they don't want to admit to themselves that mm. they want to go see ass and titties, right? That's what, and again, that's what Hollywood is. Mm. Like, well, you can't lot, tell but... people you're going to go and watch a porno, but you can say, oh, I'm going to go watch, I don't know, Black Widow. <laughs> like, and you, the reason they're going to see it is they want to see this woman in a cat suit. But... Yeah, yeah. Well, I do think that is an element of what's going on in the Vegas shows. Um, that that showgirl show is part of a tradition. They, I don't know if Vegas still has any shows running like that. But um, Vegas did for a long time, and I know there are still shows like that running in Paris, where in essence, like they have this large group of women. Also, they usually have to be very close to the same height and build. Like they're not very varied in terms of those things because they they can interchange with costumes. You know, you just pull in another girl who can fit that costume. But it's very competitive to get into them. But each number is. Um, kind of a different atmosphere and a different set of costumes, but you're just seeing the same large group of mostly or partially naked ladies come out and do a dance with a different feel. And then the next one is yet another, you know, same, same group of women, different costumes, different feel. Um, and that is a style of showgirl show that used to have, I think more of a market. Um, I think the last one um, in Vegas closed. I could be wrong, but I think the last traditional showgirl um, show has closed in Vegas. But they used to be a thing, I guess, because it's a spectacle. And once again, you get to see boobs. Yeah. Um, and but you can still see things like that. Um, oh, I'm trying to remember at the Crazy Horse. I think it is in Paris. You can still see a show that's in essence like that. That's you know a series of groups of women coming out in matching costumes and being mostly naked and doing a dance. <laughs> yeah. See, I, if I ever go to Paris, I need to go to the Moulin Rouge because I love that film. So <laughs> I feel see a bit of that there, I guess. I think you probably will. Too much stiff upper lip in the UK for the stuff. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there are Vegas shows that have more like um, old school burlesque worked into them you know, now. So I actually, uh, I know a burlesque performer who's performing as, well, okay, was pre-pandemic. I'm not sure what's going on with the show right now, but was performing as the Green Fairy. And she's, uh, Hazel Honeysuckle was a long time, very accomplished burlesque performer and got booked in a Vegas show that has this kind of circus-like atmosphere in one of the acts as a burlesque act. Um, actually two of the acts are burlesque acts done um, by burlesque performers and so it's kind of worked into it's it's a it's the showgirl thing in a sense but it's it's like a hybrid you know being a, a showgirl and a burlesque performer in a vegas show i i haven't been among that group but um I, when i was probably 19 or something my friend took me to a party he was like interested in some girl and she was like a rhythmic gymnast and everyone at the party was like rhythmic gymnasts. <laughs> and for fun, they were just doing like flips in the front yard. And everyone's just doing stories about their, you know, summer at Disney World, you know, in some big production or something. So we were a bit out of our element at that particular party. <laughs> Show people can be a lot of fun. It it's was fun. I just fell out of my element. 
Sure, sure. I also, I just I don't know what it is, but something just reminded me. The scene I really enjoyed in this film was because you don't see it often in films. All the gay guys making fun of the straight guy for being so straight. <laughs> yes, that was great. <laughs> And it's so common that you'll have all these dancers and for, for the audience, they're supposed to read as straight, you know, when they, when they're out on stage, they're, you know, dancing with and touching the partially mm. naked woman, like, Ooh, look, she's so sexy. And then they get off stage and they're like, no, 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 I am so gay. <laughs> <You know? laughs> it's very common. But it probably makes the job more difficult to do if you're not gay. Right. Cause it's, it, it can, you can just, separate it this is just the performance the dance so embarrassing moments on stage unless you're david bowie he'd rock that (laughs) (laughs) all the time like i i perform burlesque with straight guys and we're backstage and we're both like barely clothed and after you've been naked that much after a while it's like it's just not that big a deal it's like oh you have a body i have a body that's cool (laughs) you know it just it becomes so different uh, over time well, that was, uh, I think, Elizabeth Berger saying for her first day on set, just uh, whipping it off and saying, get used to it, folks. It's four months of this. <laughs> Which I, I feel like she handled the full nudity with such nonchalance mm. and like, like just took it in stride. And she always looked completely comfortable in her skin. You never got that feeling that I mean, which would have been right for her character. But um but not everybody can do that and not look like there's a little hesitation, you know, and she never looked like there was. I feel like she understood the assignment. I feel like she did a really good job of what she was asked to do, but some of the things she was asked to do just didn't make sense to the audience mm-hmm. because we weren't in on the joke, you know what I mean? We, we didn't know that he had this whole extra thing in mind. But like one of my one of the things that appeals to me and about other people about this film is this was like the thing she did after Saved by the Bell. So <laughs> you go from little Jesse's fan. Oh wow, she she graduated weird. And one of my favorite things ever is um, they did a movie where like the main characters of that show get married and and Elizabeth Berkeley was making showgirls like pretty much at the same time. So in the the wedding scene at the end, she shows up to do a cameo, looking and acting like Nomi Malone. <laughs> oh my gosh I want to see that that's amazing it's a terrible I mean I I have a weird obsession so I like watching it it's it's the worst movie like the credits come on it looks like an like a like a a corporate film just like with really bland 90s lettering I mean yeah if you're for that sort of thing yes it's great um I love that something that weird exists (laughs) (laughs) but yeah the best part of the movie is when Nomi Malone suddenly shows up for the wedding And, and she's just like everyone else is doing tv acting She's been doing showgirls, so she's just like going for an Oscar moment. I was like, hey. <laughs> yeah. so. And it was only like two years later, right? Yeah, like this movie was actually concurrent with showgirls. Like she literally looks like she just drove over from the set of showgirls. Like Saved by the Bell, the TV show, like the original TV show, didn't it only end like a couple years? Yeah, it was like 93. Yeah. <laughs> so this literally was what she did after that. <laughs> and I mean, I remember seeing that towards the end and it it's like, she she aged at least five years in those two years. She's suddenly <laughs> very grown up. <laughs> Big surprise. But uh, yeah, that that's a whole lot of fun.
I guess the we kind of didn't talk about it. The film is has a very kind of silly tone, and then mm-hmm. right in the last twenty minutes, tries to be incredibly serious, and it was a little jarring. I think. Yeah, absolutely. There's been a lot of criticism of them having the rape scene. I think um, um, even an interview with the writer was saying like that is he regrets including that scene. They've done showings of it where um, because of the type of event they were doing when like the director was going to be there or something, they've actually um, excised it from the film in order to do the showing. I think the original release in the UK from what Wikipedia was saying had that scene completely cut. Yeah. I guess that would be the one of the, the main flaw in this film. Like we were saying before, it's almost like the whole drug addiction or, you know, murder, suicide past subplot is like an not an inside joke well if you're going killing joke style but it's sort of like an inside plot so mm. yeah i mean we're we're it's it's like um he was trying to give us tiny clues but there's no way for anybody to know that that's what's going on right so maybe to the director and the writer having this horrible climax makes sense because they know they no know that there's a dark undertone the whole time yeah but we don't know that's what's going on. I mean, we find out, you know, after at the end, after the rape, that that's yeah. her history. But um, but there was really no way of seeing that coming. And because while it was, like you said, angry, I mean, it's very cutthroat and all of that. There's no um, feeling of like um, life or death. Mm. I mean, the most horrible things that happens is somebody gets stripped and falls downstairs. And yeah. that is serious and bad but it's not like you know but it's not life-threatening and then suddenly they probably need a tenant this film well <laughs> have it play backwards yeah so you get so it all makes sense but in they just needed to give us more of a hint of how dark her background was at the start mm. yeah because you can tell yeah. she's hiding something but they didn't make it clear enough that it's horrible this is a i had to read the trivia page to pick up this clue moment but um, earlier in the film, when she's first auditioning in Vegas, um, Marty or, or Gay, that's a, yeah, uh, refers to as Pollyanna. I did catch that. Oh, I actually catch- caught that. Okay. And I, I was like, oh, am I meant to know who Pollyanna is? Is that a reference? <laughs> then- it turns out her name's Pollyanna. So she's like, oh, this guy's on to me. Yeah. I never got that. I mean, because Poly- Pollyanna, the thing is like, you know, the whatever, the sweet little girl from that. Was it was it a Disney movie or something? I can't something remember. Like that. <laughs> but see, I assumed it was just a reference like that, and mm. then at the end, it turned yeah. out that is her name. <laughs> I never. I I feel bad because I just watched this and took notes and did not. <laughs> I had to, as I said, I had to hit the trivia page for that one. <laughs> but yeah. I was like, oh yeah, she does have like a notable reaction when when he says that. Which again, if you know this subplot, then oh okay, that makes sense. But... Yeah. And then shortly after that, she hides her social security and stuff like this. Mm. But it just mm. didn't. Maybe it's it, powerful, but I felt like it didn't lay it on enough that something is going on. Yeah, you know that, like, okay, her life hasn't been good. And I actually, like, I like the dog chow scene, which is often criticized, but I come from a really poor family. So mm-hmm. that moment of, like, two people who come from poverty, like, recognizing, like, you've been really poor. I've been really poor. You ate doggy chow. I ate doggy chow. Now I never ate doggy chow. And I don't know anybody who who has. <laughs> I feel like the specific reference was a little over the top. But that moment of two people going, like, oh, okay, we both get that. Like, I actually really enjoyed that. Um, 
But there are a lot of little subtle things like the social security, like her, you know, referencing how poor she was. You're like, okay, so her life's been hard, but they don't, I, I wonder if because they knew they didn't realize, yeah, you guys are not laying this on thick enough. We have no idea how bad it was. Right. <laughs> well, no other Verhoeven film has a twist, right? Yeah, this, they're I all mean, pretty this is... straightforward. I mean, I guess Total Recall has like twenty twists, but again, <laughs> you know, you go in knowing that this is that kind of film. But this is the only film where it's like he's trying to do like a Shyamalan. Oh, it's all completely different once you know the ending. But I think even if I rewatched it now, I don't think I'd be like, oh, okay, well that was a reference to this. It would just yeah, be like, yeah, she's just moody and doesn't she's want to talk just... about her past. Yeah, she's just got a real hair trigger, and yeah, she's kind of mean. I mean, she did pull a knife on a guy right at the start of the film. <laughs> so maybe maybe we're the dumb ones here. <laughs> That's her, um, I, like, to me, it's like a 70s John Waters film where people just act in these insane ways. And even with, you know, criticizing the acting, um, we were talking about multiple maniacs where John Waters has a specific cadence to how people often talk. And this movie has a little bit of that too. Like it's these I think it does. weird, unnatural cadences that are quite entertaining, but are not particularly based in reality. Right. Yeah, I feel, I feel like there is a specific, um, with the exception of a couple of people who are approaching it in a more natural way. I, I actually, that was in my notes. Like I, I've noticed that I'm like, Oh, when you really look at it, there's, it's like you've got a consistent cadence with everybody on, on, on screen. Um, I, I guess that is one thing Joe Esterhaz is kind of known for. And um, what, what's the other guy that's really known? Sorkin? Yeah, that's the guy whose dialogue just, uh, everyone talks like Aaron Sorkin, basically. <laughs> I've never properly watched anything Aaron Sorkin. I've only seen clips. And I don't know why this guy's lauded. It's all terrible. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, all of his characters apparently talk like him. I, again, I, I haven't even seen the West Wing, so I'm, I don't know that much. But I, I know he's someone that's put out. Um, I think David Mamey also. And I, I do like some, a lot of things he's done. But, um, Sorry, I've just suddenly got a very dry throat. I'm going to okay. drink some water. <laughs> yeah, maybe it's David Mamey. But I, I do appreciate when there's sort of um, a, direct, a writer or a director that can sort of have that through line. Uh, Wes Anderson, but probably more because he brings the same actors in every time. Yeah. <laughs> Well, they, I feel like they kind of, yeah, he has his like stable of people that he works with. So they learn like the feel of what he does. But yeah, I, like Verhoeven doesn't do it, but I, Dester Haas definitely sort of has that coming through. Dude. We didn't talk about Penny. Oh yeah, because Penny gets a sequel. Do you know Penny gets a sequel? I heard, yeah, it's made by the actress. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> bizarre unofficial movie that she made as a sequel yeah, um, for her character rena riffle yeah she's she plays penny otherwise known as hope because they don't want to fuck a penny they want to fuck hope yep. <laughs> dies in the audience don't want to fuck a penny <laughs> um, but yeah she wrote and starred in the sequel but also the song that's playing during the lap dance scene mm. um that is a song that she like wrote and recorded and oh. I had somebody play it for them without telling them it was her. And so they agreed to use it in the film. And it ended up, I think it is the song that's during the Nomi and um, whatever Kyle McLaughlin's McLaughlin. Kyle McLaughlin. <laughs> Kyle McLaughlin. <laughs> that is his character's name now. <laughs> that's his, he's 
Kyle. He just is. Um, but during that lap dance scene, that's the song that's playing. It's one that uh, that Penny wrote. Oh wow! <laughs> and she was also in um, uh, Striptease in '96. Yeah. The very next year, I just thought that was interesting. Like she's just popping up in that stuff. I also thought it was interesting that Striptease um, they had no clue how to market it because Showgirls had already flopped and like wait, we kind of made a similar movie. How, how do we play this? <laughs> so. And I love striptease. I thought, I thought, I think striptease is a good film in a more straightforward way. Mm. Um, but I think that, uh, a, I think it maybe didn't get the attention it deserved because it's, it's kind of a dark comedy that's set in a strip club. So right. people don't know what to do with that. You know, if this was a failure, I guess, Verhoeven accepted his failure. He he went in person to receive his Razzies. <laughs> nice. I, I think um, on her name, Catwoman did that as well. Yeah, Halle Berry. Halle Berry. Yeah. She, yeah. She also accepted that. That that's that's class to go. Yeah, I got a lot of respect for anyone who accepts their Razzie in person. <laughs> I think he either he was the first ever to do it, or he was the first director. Okay. But it was like he he uh, he accomplished some kind of a landmark in his choice to do that. <laughs> So I'm curious from the point of view of somebody who performs, um, I enjoy like all the crazy costumes and the dancing. Like that's part of why you watch a movie like this to me, because I mean, not that I don't like boobs as much as the next person, but I'm excited about like all the dancing and all the kind of backstage and show person kind of stuff. And I'm curious if, that's enjoyable if that's not something you seek out you know what I mean I mean originally these guys apparently had in mind something that would be like an old MGM musical but then the writer and director went on like a trip to Vegas for research and had a debauch yes, they had a, <laughs> Air quotes they had for research in Vegas and decided that approaching it from a much raunchier standpoint would be way better and they'd enjoy it more okay. um but i i feel like some people and, and i feel like a lot of the drag community are attracted to it because it's like it's crazy costumes everybody's got wigs on there's a dance number you know i don't know how that is if you if you don't normally seek out films for the dance numbers <laughs> Like I said, um, I don't. I didn't really get goddess, and I, I was like, "Is this a real thing?" Which you've already explained. Yes, it is a real thing. <laughs> so, just I, I keep mentioning John Waters. That is the thing that gets me in in the door here. Just like that, totally like um, the theater of the absurd. You know, <laughs> like this movie is very theater of the absurd, which is very rare for a Hollywood movie. That usually. Yeah has to be in a caught, you know, low budget caught film. So, I mean, this one now is very squarely a caught film, I think in great part because of that. And it's just wild that it was made on a pretty big budget as a large Hollywood production. Yeah. I, I like dancing in the sense of, you know, just going to a club and dancing. And I think I would enjoy this kind of spectacle and razzmatazz on a stage, but it doesn't do much for me on screen. Mm -hmm. I guess because, you know, there are all kinds of effects and costumes and makeup and wigs you can do. So seeing something which can be done in real life on screen, it doesn't quite pop for me in the same way. Yeah. So what I really take from this film is the metaphor and the commentary that it's giving. 
So that's three different ways we've all enjoyed this film. So that it's not a bad film. <laughs> no, no. The commentary is definitely there. It's just through that totally weird Verhoeven prism, which especially in the 90s, people just didn't get for some reason. I mean, they did in that, uh, except for Showgirls, these films were quite successful. But like Starship Troopers never really got that. You know, Robocop even is super obvious about it. And it's still not its calling card, even though it's, you know, a pretty heavy commentary film. Starship Troopers and Robocop lay it on so thick and people still didn't get it. Yeah. Whereas this film is a little more subtle about it. So of course no one got that it was saying something. <laughs> well, and I read somewhere um, like a critic saying that on the whole critics understood that um, social commentary and satire was his thing. And for some reason they could make the connection when the film was focused on violence. But if the film is more focused on sex, suddenly they couldn't see it clearly anymore. Like, even though they know, they already knew that's what he does. Like they're aware of it, but they're completely overlooking it once it's put in this, you know, scandalous setting. Well, I guess people were so desensitized to violence Mm-hmm. That you can be like, okay, well, there's the violence. What else is going on? But people weren't used to seeing this much sex in a Hollywood movie. So they weren't able to look past what was right in front of their face, maybe. I, I, read, a, I read a little like blurb that the Marie Claire, which is like a women's magazine in the US, um, wrote in 2021. They ran this blurb where they described um, showgirls and it was a really short like paragraph, but the main sentence said that basically Elizabeth Berkeley spends half the film naked and on a pole. And it's interesting because I went and looked, technically she spends one minute and 30 seconds naked and on a pole. (laughs) In the entire movie, she's only on the pole for a minute and 30 seconds. And she doesn't actually spend half of the movie completely naked, but like, it's, you know, all these years later and they're still, their quick blurb is, you're just going to see her naked on a pole, just so you know. Right. The whole point is she gets away from the pole relatively quickly. Yeah. <laughs> well, and then learns that the pole was actually more honest. Right, right. But <laughs> one of the things they talk about in the film. Um, I know people who do that for a living. I mean, some of the people I know do that because of, you know, financial need. I mean, but some of them just like, you know, could do any kind of job and that's the job they choose because they actually like the work. So. Well, I know people who do it for a hobby and for fitness, so. Mm-hmm. But maybe not so much in 1995. <laughs> when you were five years old. <laughs> well, yeah, I definitely was. <laughs> I'd have been like, cool, you've got a fireman's pole in your house. I want to play on it. <laughs> And again, I think I had watched Robocop at that point. Yeah, Robocop didn't have pole dancing. No. Just did, had pole Did have a guy shooting. getting his dick shot off. That's what I said, pole shooting. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, that's a, a different... Again, that's that's Paul Verhoeven uh, swimming in violence. Now he's swimming in nudity. Yep. So, and, and that somehow drove people insane. And again, I bet my, my mother would have batted more of an eyelid at my grandmother showing me this one <laughs> than showing me all the violent ones. Both ways does seem pretty... Wild, yeah, my, but... my mother was not happy when she found out the films I'd been watching, but <laughs> <laughs> it is it is odd that one is seen as more acceptable than the other. Oh, definitely. Oh, people are my door. Unusual. Nope. His doorbells ring, which is strange. <laughs> <laughs>
I thought I knew. Yeah, the the NHK, the public TV people come and want money from you sometimes. So yeah, I was great. I got an old man who had just saw that I was foreign and freaked out. <laughs> <laughs> so oh, it's good then. Yeah, he wasn't even going to try and talk to me. He just like started bowing and backing away as soon as he saw that I wasn't <laughs> Japanese. <laughs> so. We, so Real quick, just because I'm curious, because I realized the answer to this for me, and I think it's kind of funny. Who's your least favorite character, like overall? The rocker. Oh, well, yeah. <laughs> Andrew okay, Carver. Except for him, maybe except for him, because of course he has to He's be everybody. Literally a monster, so. <laughs> My least favorite character are um, the showgirl, Julie, her kids. Those oh kids God, are back yeah. <laughs> They are so awful and they're there only for a few seconds, but on a production at that level that you would never have the kids backstage. They were um, more annoying than the literal monkeys. They were so <laughs> awful. They were so terrible. It was this brief moment of, I actually had, was surprised by the amount I was, it like interrupted the movie for me. And I'm just like, where did these horrible children come from? Make them go away. That whole segment was so bizarre were they like the director's kids or something <laughs> it was such a weird unnecessary moment i should mention uh the I, I one of the things i read said the actresses the only time they were truly uncomfortable um naked was when the monkeys on set because the <laughs> monkeys would just stare oh, just, i bet they grabbed and stuffed too. <laughs> But you were going to say when the kids were on set because I've had somebody try to bring their kids somewhere where we're all changing and I'm like, no, I'm not naked in front of your kid, honey. No. But yeah, apparently for the actresses, it was the monkeys that really made them uncomfortable because they yeah. would just, yeah, the kids were probably told, okay, don't, don't, you know, they'd probably well, just brought them in for the shot, but. Yeah, they might have adjusted what was on set at the time. I can't tell. Yeah, they, they probably used a little smoke and mirrors so they saw as little as possible. Yeah. <laughs> and they were such pronouncedly like preppy looking children. They yeah, they were like real they precocious little shits. <laughs> they looked like they just walked in from some other movie. Like, what movie are you from? Like, is there some suburban housewife movie going on in the next, you know, stage and you just wandered in? It's yeah, it was really odd. Weird. What kind of money would that pay? Being on a, a high budget, oh, uh, at least a big production number Vegas show, but as not, a, you know, one of the dancers. I don't, I don't know how much it would pay, but I think it would be like a reasonably normal income. Like, okay. you know, you, you wouldn't be like, you know, you're not going to retire on it, but, um, but it would be like a middle class, lower middle class income. Okay. Yeah. Once upon a time, reasonably normal income was you could retire on it. <laughs> Those days are gone. <laughs> Yeah, you it, it the the person who's the lead's probably actually making pretty darn good money. But but I, I I would assume that it's, you know, well, there's a reason you want that job instead of, you know, to be on the wait staff or mm. working the casino. Right. Like, <laughs> yeah. It's more than that. No, because I mean we're looking at the glam. Oh, they must be quite well paid, but I'm like, are are they? <laughs> I mean, if you're good in the casino, you can make a lot of money on the tips, but yeah, that yeah. takes a real skill. Yeah, so also, I'm yeah, basing I, that knowledge on like watching James Bond. <laughs> I, I think that I, my impression has been that the base pay is a reasonable pay, but not like, oh my gosh, I'm famous and rich now yeah. kind of pay. It's it's a reasonable pay is my impression. I only know um, 
one former like proper showgirl personally. I took a, a walking lesson from her. She teaches walking classes because walking like a showgirl is an art. Like they actually have to learn to, you know, hold their head up and never look down. They have to be able to go up and down stairs in these sky high heels with like, you know, 50 pounds balanced on their head and not look down. They have to look straight forwards while doing that, knowing exactly where they're going. So it is pretty impressive that they can do that. Um, but she's the only one I know personally. And she, she said it was a good job, so. Yeah, Luke and I have to teach how to sit in a chair lessons. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that's six year olds who can't sit in the chair. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, it's fun. So I guess it, I, I was thinking 90s films that have kind of been reclamated. And the other one that came to mind was also Las Vegas with uh, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Mm-hmm. Also a complete disaster when it came out. Although I saw it opening weekend and enjoyed it quite well. So See, I only know that one as a well-regarded film. I didn't even know it was a... It was a got disastrous film. reviews. It didn't do well when it came out. Mm-hmm. Um, Big Lebowski also. Um, I did see that opening weekend. Quite liked it, but that one... Was I mean, that's the not... go-to of cult films. Right, so. but it was it, because it was not well-regarded for about three years. It uh, had to come on video, so... I. I do feel like today's Showgirls kind of fits in with that particular batch of uh, ni- like high-profile 90s films that flopped, but kind of did come back. I mean, like, let's look at Waterworld. Waterworld is never coming back, coming back, came and back. And but it, it was one of the, like, top five most profitable films that year. That's what's <laughs> interesting to me. It came out the same year as Showgirls. It's super weird and over the top and has moments where you're like, I don't understand why this is happening. But even though it like because it costs so much, it, it you know, um, was considered in some ways, you know, a, a financial disappointment. It did make a profit, but it was one of the top five highest grossing films that year. And now, you know, like 20 years on, we do not look back at Waterworld in the fond way that we look back at Showgirls. <laughs> I think Waterworld just got added to our list. <laughs> yeah, it was always on the list somewhere. Yeah, um, Showgirls does remain the top grossing NC-17 film, though. Well, and eventually it made a lot, right? It was the it, like highest ever uh, in video sales, I think, or it's at least in the top ten of like all time uh, video sales. Huh. It, it got big numbers. I looked it up, and I can't remember if it was the top or if it was just in the top ten. But it got big. Either way, it's good. Yeah, <laughs> like world class, big numbers in video sales. So it did something right. Well, it is a party movie. I guess that's your kind of party. Although you, again, you might want to, you know, shut it down for the last 20 minutes, but yeah, the party doesn't last that long. I don't know. I mean, anything that you put on at a party, you're not watching the full two hours and 10 minutes. True. True. I'm just saying if you get to the rape scene, that's something going, well, this doesn't yeah. feel like a good party. I used to put the VeggieTales Silly Songs video on in the background at parties because it's just super weird and everybody's enjoying the party. And then every once in a while, somebody's like, is that a cucumber? The <laughs> 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 so. thing I ever put on at a party was a 10 hour YouTube video of um, Gladiator, which is saying, my name is Maximus Decimus Meridius Decimus Maximus Decimus Meridius Decimus Decimus Maximus Decimus. <laughs> and it just goes on forever. <laughs> Oh, I just left it on and I think it was on for like a good hour and a half before someone switched it off. Oh my gosh, that's funny. the worst thing I put on at a party. Okay, One of not... your weird educational films, presumably. 
Maybe it was. It was like your whole party shtick, wasn't it? It kind of was. But I remember because uh, I was working outdoor education in South Carolina. So it's like we're hanging out in the trailer because we live in East Bumblefuck teaching kids there and have nothing to do on the weekends. And I, I did put on Shake Hands with Danger, the construction film. And one girl was offended because her dad was a construction foreman. Oh. <laughs> so... That, that was, yeah, but I think everyone else was amused by it. So, but you know, oh, this stuff actually happens. <laughs> well, it does. That's why it's an educational film. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. I'm laughing at the actual fact that men die. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, but it's not staged for this particular right. movie. Yes, I mean, you're not laughing at that. Oh, right, right, right. <laughs> if you're laughing at Signal 30, where they are showing you actual car footage, that's a little weird, but, um, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, Showgirls, an educational film about the travails of the entertainment industry, I suppose. I think now, if you're looking at the Verhoeven oeuvre, it has to be in there. <laughs> it's like Robocop, Total Recall, Showgirls, Starship Troopers. They're all of a piece. Right. That's what I've been arguing. <laughs> it's all, yeah, like you said, it's just like a five-pronged attack on the system. Because I think you weren't sure when I first said that. Well, I'd never seen it. I had no idea it was a Verhoeven. <laughs> no, I believed you on that. I didn't think it fit in the sci-fi sanctuary, so you had to create this month to do it. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> I still like my parallel universe thing, but yeah. <laughs> uh, oh, go ahead. I, I was just going to say, I think it also makes a difference if you're coming in into it looking for that. Like, if you're looking for the story that's if you're looking for the allegory, you see it. But I think that, you know, a lot of people just came to it, you know, like, so people are going to be really naked, right? And <laughs> if, if you're just waiting for the naked, you don't pick up on the allegory. Right, well, I've had the internet since I was 10, so I have no difficulty finding naked people. <laughs> this was 1995. You'd have, a, you'd have yeah. your friend that would have the Spice Channel, but it would be, like, all fuzzy because they don't actually have it, and they're, like, holding the antenna, so it comes through a little bit or something. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't remember the details of this, to be honest. Or the magazine that someone got off their dirty uncle. Oh, oh no, no, no. America, we got more space in America, so we have the woods porn, where someone has left a stash oh, no, of I had dirty... Okay. I found a magazine in a hedge. <laughs> Yeah, like a, all my friends came to see it. Yeah, it was a Boy Scout. We went camping a lot. I found the woods porn. Oh my god! <laughs> I just want to know who's leaving the woods porn. Well, I, I think a few years later we went and put it in some woods because we're like, well, we have to pass it on to the next generation. Oh, okay. Was it like fifties? Like a very special kind of paying it forward. Yeah. <laughs> As kids these days don't know they're born. You, you weren't handing along Tijuana Bibles. No. Okay. <laughs> You're familiar with those, yeah? I think you've told me about them. Okay. <laughs> but, uh, I should probably qualify that for a listener. Those are like comics from the 30s that, you know, have like movie stars and cartoon characters. Basically, it was the internet of the 30s. <laughs> Let's put it that way. <laughs> but it was on these cheaply printed comic books. <laughs> um, Dee, do you have any other major points you want to throw out on this one? Um, I don't know. I think the... I think the line that Gina Gershon has that kind of sums up the whole thing is pretty perfect. Um, the there's always someone younger and hungrier coming down the stairs after you. Like that really is the entire film in the nutshell. Mm. You know, it's it's this is the environment they're showing you. Um, 
I, I thought it was really funny. There's this uh, French new wave. I think he's a director. Oh shoot, what's his name? Who, how he put it was, oh, Jacques Rivette. He said um, the entire, the whole movie is about surviving in a world that's populated by assholes. <laughs> yeah, that pretty much sums it up. A nice that's movie. what it's about. <laughs> surviving in a world that's full of assholes. Yeah, you, you got to be an asshole to beat the assholes. Can you give us the voice for that one in a in world. In 1995, can you survive in a world populated by assholes? <laughs> there we go. <laughs> um, assholes. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, sometimes it's fun to give it that pronunciation, but it, it, it you seem more like an arsehole when, if you're American and you do it. <laughs> yeah, as well. <laughs> I know that you and the colonies can't speak the Queen's English properly. <laughs> Colonials. <laughs> um, yeah, we do hope you're up to a little more live stage sooner rather than later, but in the meantime, where can people head to uh, get into your thing? I, I, I was looking up a just a few nights ago, I wanted to see a bit of your show. So I found it, I found a few videos, but I don't know if I was looking the right place or not. <laughs> There's a few videos of me on YouTube that are public. Um, I mean, I've got a ton of videos online, but I usually use them for um, applications to things. Um, there's not a lot that's publicly viewable because I always figured that uh, if everybody can see the whole act online, why would they pay to come see me live, right? <laughs> um, in fact, I don't, I don't allow um, images of my fully exposed upper area on the internet because that way it's a delightful surprise when somebody comes and sees me on stage. I enjoy people coming up and complimenting me later because they had no idea. <laughs> um, <laughs> but you can find me on most social media uh, at dflowered, D-E-E flowered. Um, and I do perform primarily in the Atlanta, Georgia area. And so hopefully in the next uh, six months or so, I don't know, um, that'll start happening again. I guess we'll see. And of course, uh, you can find me in Gonzorific Films, like on, uh, on YouTube and on a lot of streaming services now. You can find me in Gonzorific Films like Space Boobs in Space, and Pajama Nightmare, and I am Bad Girl Dracula of the Bad Girl Dracula trilogy. And Bad I, Girl Dracula. I, ha I have to throw out my favorite review for Space Boobs in Space, which I think I do because I prefer most of the music too, which was just, this is the perfect film for if you're getting blackout drunk. <laughs> 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 which I thought I was pretty funny. <laughs> I'm really proud of Space Boobs in Space because I also wrote this. I also wrote the script for it. Nice. <laughs> pretty exciting getting to write lines for your friends. Like, um, why must the milk of the titties be so susceptible to space bacteria? See, that's a talent I don't have. <laughs> I am very proud of that. Because <laughs> I, I, I did the Gonzorific Psycho Vixen story with him, but I didn't write any of the dialogue because. Um, you know, it sounded like showgirls. Oh, <laughs> sounded like showgirls. <laughs> um, like I, you know, I do music, and I'm capable of writing lyrics. But what I like is the guy that writes lyrics for me. He'll often just take weird shit I say on the phone and put them in lyrics. So for me, that's better than me sitting down trying to write them. So, <laughs> but uh, yeah, yeah. 
but yeah, people should watch that. Wesley Crusher, Crusher likes it, so, so should you. <laughs> I, I remember seeing the Will Wheaton tweet for Space Boobs. So yeah, you've told cool. me before. Yeah. <laughs> pretty, pretty helpful stuff. Hopefully someday we'll um, do the final installation in the trilogy because we have long been planning to do, we've got Space Boobs, the original. Mm -hmm. Space Boobs in Space was actually a sequel. And then we're going to do Space Boobs in Boobs. That All is, right. <laughs> like inner space. The final frontier. <laughs> so okay. someday, that's on my like bucket list. I want to film actors inside boobs how many boobs does captain picard have three that the was... left boob the right boob and the final front boob <laughs> oh i thought you were just talking about his head no. <laughs> <laughs> like you were trying me. to say it would be interesting for a bald man to be making a joke about a boob being a bald head anyway yeah <laughs> maybe next halloween i'll just draw a nipple on top and that'll be my costume <laughs> Uh, how about for our stuff? Yeah, if you've enjoyed our podcast, you can find it on Twitter at MLSFSPod. We're also on Facebook, YouTube, Apple Podcasts. Just search Matt and Luke's Sci-Fi Sanctuary. If you like the music you heard during this podcast, you can find more of Matt's music at rovingsagemedia.bandcamp.com. And if you want to support this podcast and check out our other podcasts, you can find all of that at patreon.com slash podcastio podcastius podcast yes see when i bring it up on my computer i can't remember the light if it's um or us and my computer won't show me <laughs> it like has a dot 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 right at the right. end so yeah yeah i i think i did originally tell you podcast young oh, okay. and then i went back and rewatched the episode of peep show and it's actually podcast yes oh okay well, there we go <laughs> <laughs> but yes d thank you very much for joining us on this particular non-sci-fi conversation we will have to call you in for a sci-fi sometime as well Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. I've enjoyed getting to talk to you both. And it's it's nice to finally get to meet like sort of face to face. Yeah, yeah. I'm the ghost number because I uh, just hang out on the other side of the world. So <laughs> it's it's funny to only just now meet somebody that in to some degree you've probably worked together with for like eight years or something. Yeah, I know. We've collaborated on probably like at least like a dozen projects. So <laughs> and this is the first one. Um, uh, I was going to, I was. Matt, you're the outro guy now. I know I'm the outro guy and I just wanted to push you down a flight of stairs. So I'm, I'm pushing the listener down a flight of stairs. Don't fall down on a flight of stairs, people. You should have Always hold the handrail, listeners. <laughs> Always hold the hand rail. There's but always... then also wash your hands after at the moment, I guess. Mm. <laughs> always somebody younger and hungrier behind you on the staircase. Coming soon, Throne of Blood, Up in Smoke, Doom 1984, Into the Spider-Verse.